to Objection to the Rule, live, sort of, on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, my name is Teresa, and I am here with my co-host, Emily, Sarah, Matthew, and Jasmine. How you guys doing? Good. Perfect. Good. Good. Yeah. I can't complain. It's been nasty weather. I know. I was, like, staring at the storm today through the window. It was actually kind of calming. Tropical storm, apparently. We're rolling on through. Yeah. yeah. I'm in Colorado, everyone. Oh. Uh, 100 oh, nice. degrees here. <laughs> yeah. what's, very, what's it like there? Super hot, very hot and dry. But like 100 degrees here doesn't feel like 100 degrees on the East Coast. It feels right. like 85 or something because it's mm-hmm. not humid. Mm-hmm. Dry heat is a lot better, in my opinion. It's not oppressive. No, but I love, like, I don't know. I just from growing up in Jersey, like I love humidity. It's weird. Oh no! Right. Wow. Is, that, is the phrase the is the phrase? It's not the heat. It's the humidity. Is that like something that you all grew up with? Yeah, or it's something oh, I, yeah. I figured out at some point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm from the Midwest, and in Ohio, well, Cincinnati is literally like in the valley. So we wake up, sleep, breathe, eat humidity all day. It's awful. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Maybe I should move there. <laughs> <laughs> Just absolutely. <nuts. laughs> All right, we... and that—that's the—that's the weather corner. You heard it. <laughs> <laughs> the weather update from the team. Exactly. Uh, Teresa, I—I want to hear about your moment of calm. That, what, did that feel good when you were watching the storm come in? Yeah, I just was, I had this really weird training today, like all day, like an in-service training for work. And I was just like to a point where I couldn't listen anymore, you know, after like two or three hours. So I just literally sat on the couch with the dog and we watched a storm for like 10 minutes. And it was just great. I was like, when was the last time I sat and watched like the rain? I like lit a candle. I had a whole moment. It was good. <laughs> Man, that's great. Yeah, it was relaxing. If I didn't have to sit through the training, I would have slept because, you know, that's when the best sleep comes. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, guys. So we got a full show today and we are going to kick it off with the local news. Who's up on the docket for local this week? Um, I'm doing the local story. So this is Jasmine. Um, the story that I'm going to be talking to you about today, this information is from an article written by Ben Verde for the Brownstoner. And the article title is Crown Heights Tenants Say Prominent Brooklyn Couple Tried to Illegally Evict Them. So tenants at 1214 Dean Street said that their landlords harassed them and attempted to evict them illegally from their Crown Heights townhouse. According to the tenants, Loretta Gensville, who owns Area Yoga and Planted Cafe and Gennaro Brooks Church, tried to kick the four of them out and move into the house while the tenants were still inside. One tenant, who's named Manar Ball, has lived there since August of last year and says, Gennaro walked into my room while I was asleep and started demanding rent and asked for my other roommates. That's not okay. I don't have to say that. They make us feel like we're the crazy ones for being hurt. The tenants said that the landlords originally agreed to stop charging rent in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic after many of the tenants lost work. So originally there were seven people living in the townhouse. 
Um, many of them lost their jobs because of COVID. Four of them are remaining in the house. Scout Gottlieb has lived in the building since April 2020 and said that the landlords later demanded back rent, telling the tenants that they would be selling the building and that they needed to move out. The four tenants do not have a lease and they've been paying rent month to month. They had been told, or they're saying that they have been told they would have a month to leave the building. But a few days after the landlords told them that, the landlords walked into the townhouse unannounced with their entire family, two maintenance men and a dog. One of the tenants living there was recovering from brain surgery at the time when the landlords barged in. Scout Gottlieb alleges that Genville swung open the door to her bedroom while she was changing her clothes and put her hands on her when she tried to shut the door. Gottlieb said, I was startled and ran to go close the door. And what she did was essentially grab my wrist to prevent me from closing the door. She says, I was terrified. New York state law mandates that landlords give their tenants 24 hour notice before entering the dwelling for any reason. It also says that landlords have to prove in court that tenants without a, a written lease owe rent before eviction proceedings can begin. So neither of those things happened with these landlords. Before tenants are making arrangements to leave as soon as possible, but Brooks Church, the, one of the landlords, has now moved into one of the house's empty bedrooms and is making them feel unsafe. On Tuesday, several dozen locals gathered outside the building to rally alongside the tenants. They were chanting while Brooks Church sat on the stoop of the building. He was reporting the protesters and also taking phone calls. He eventually left the scene around 9.30 p.m., but he sent locksmiths to change the locks on the doors. Allegedly, the locksmiths assaulted several protesters before being driven off, according to Amani Henry, a local organizer with the group Equality for Flatbush. And if you want more updates on the situation, you can follow them on Instagram, Equality for Flatbush. The activists were eventually able to stall the eviction for the time being. And some background on the landlords. Brooks Church is well known in Brooklyn for being a quote unquote green contractor and for his eco-friendly home. It's a Carroll Gardens brownstone with a front facade that he turned into what he calls a living wall made of plants. His wife, Genville, is the CEO of a chain of wellness stores in Brooklyn including Area Yoga, Area Kids, and Planted, which is a vegan cafe on Smith Street. Genville was also arrested in 2017 for shoplifting over $1,000 in merchandise from a Whole Foods in Gowanus. Neither one of the landlords responded um, to give their own statements for the article. So for the time being, the tenants are safe. Like I, as far as I know, as of today, there's still people camping outside of the building, like in shifts to make sure that they're not assaulted or anything. But yeah, like I think that this is just the beginning of a lot of more of these types of evictions we're going to see because if people don't have the rent, they don't have it. Wow, that's awful that they would come all in their house like that and as if they were going to really get something. Like, 
Did they really expect to get cash in their hand by busting in on their tenants that way? I don't know. I really don't understand what the, I don't know if them trying to move their family in was a matter of intimidation or if something happened where they don't like where maybe they can't live in their own house. I don't, I don't understand what that was, but I'm thinking that they thought we can just scare them. If we bring these people over and say, we're moving in, that'll push them to leave. Yeah. That's fucked up. Um, yeah, know your rights, renters' rights. Um, there's um, an eviction is a long process, right? It, and, and it is a process. And I'm not sure how familiar people are with like how the housing court works and whatnot. But a landlord just showing up a day after you haven't paid rent, telling you to get out of there, is not how it works. Um, does anybody else have uh, any? Any know your rights type stuff? Um. Yeah, I was in a similar situation years back when I first moved here and I was in a brownstone on the top floor um, and something went wrong with the signing of my lease and they came and demanded me to leave the place um, while I was in there like trying to pack and it was in an unfortunate situation. I ended up calling the police because I felt like I was going to do some something crazy because they were just harassing me so much and they told them, that they would serve them um, some sort of ticket for harassing me because they hadn't even filed any um, eviction, anything formal. So they were just harassing me without any proper paperwork. So they, the police told me I had up until six months to leave if they didn't file anything. So it's pretty scary when you have, well, pretty scary when you have nowhere to go, you know? Yeah. From what I understand, New York City actually has some pretty good tenants' rights compared to a lot of other places in the country. But if you are afraid and you don't know, these landlords can just bully you, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm grateful that the tenants were able to get in touch or get the word out and activists were able to rally around them to chase this guy off because people yeah. take advantage of you just not knowing and of you being scared. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, the the laws protecting protecting renters and potential renters and tenants are like very strong um, in a lot of ways. Like, for example, uh, this is a know your race thing. Um, you your max late fee on a rent can be fifty dollars, and it can't it, or it, or it's five percent of the rent, whichever is less. So that's something important to know that if your landlord's trying to charge you like a hundred bucks because you're like a week late, like he he or she can't do that. Uh, they can't do that. So yeah, I mean it's important, um, and it's hard for people. I think landlords do rely on you know there being so many like little laws and the minutia and the ways that, like the elaborate ways that there are for people to get money from another person. Um, and they rely on people not knowing how to navigate that. So you guys are right on that point. But yeah, if you can like read up on some of that stuff so you know how to fight those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would also recommend the book Evicted if you haven't read it. It's not, they're not talking specifically about New York City, but it's a deep look, I think, at, at the Milwaukee housing market for low income people and how landlords can actually make money by like the churn of poor people in and out who get evicted because to me it seems like counterintuitive to evict people but when you have like a class of people that's really desperate for housing 
and there's not a lot that's being put into, you know, upkeeping the building, there is, there are ways for you to get rich off of that. And there's, um, there's a dirty money episode on Netflix that's about Jared Kushner being a slumlord. And they go into detail about how, like you're saying, Emily, like just with late fees, like these poor people are getting like shafted because they in, they're in this like cycle of paying like excessive amounts of money to live in shitty conditions and being threatened with eviction all the time. It's mm-hmm. it's crazy. You can get rich off of that. Yeah. And it, that happens in a lot of industries too, right? Like in, um, in loans and in general, like for mortgages, for example, the riskier the loan might be, let's say you don't have good credit or you don't have a lot of savings. Like they charge high interest because it's the way of like the bank to quote, like protect itself. But again, it's, it's, you know, a person without a lot of money and with not great credit is just getting, you know, punished in the same system, like over and over. Like it happens in a lot of different ways. Mm Mm-hmm. I did a, um, I followed this one slumlord for a couple months uh, and I did a documentary on it. And what, what I, what this one person did a lot was basically uh, making a lot of money off of getting people to break leases. So tenants weren't educated on tenant repair forms and the ways that you can uh, get your landlord to make repairs. And so the landlord would just let, cockroaches the cockroach problem gets so bad that people would complain and complain and they he would send like uh inadequate exterminators there that he actually had a deal with and people just didn't want to live with roaches and so they'd break a lease and then he'd get uh the security deposit he'd make a couple extra thousand dollars off of that and then put a new person in and then up oh, here comes cockroaches and then just do it again over and over again mm-hmm. yeah and that's a another factor there too for people to know their rights like if your landlord is not doing enough upkeep and you could argue that the place you're living in is either dangerous or just like uninhabitable in a certain way there are certain rights for tenants to withhold their rent that a court would upheld in those scenarios um it's tricky though so like make sure you do you know you don't want to get caught in a bad situation and i think i don't know what the threshold is for um a, a judge to consider a place like um I forget what the actual technical term is but like uninhabitable essentially uh, I'm not sure what that threshold is but it's good to know that you have rights when it comes to a landlord whose job it is to make sure the place is livable yeah yeah just document it and then you can get it yes put, put that rent yes. in escrow uh it's really yep. annoying but don't let them the, the one the, I don't know if other property managers do this but anyone who runs everything over the phone and doesn't do shit with email that's a tactic, you know, because you don't have a phone conversation. Yeah. So, like, yeah. And emails are also, um, if you make an agreement over email, it can be considered legally binding and often is, which can hurt. All, it could actually, it just everyone should know that also, because sometimes you say something and it can go to court, um, which in a way that could hurt you, but it also can help even you. If you it, like, even yeah, if you so, don't sign it, like, yeah, so signed agreement. I think I'm trying to remember there are there's some court cases that so I had to go through this whole process because of a lease I was under at some point was only renewed via email and someone was trying to argue that that wasn't like legal enough but it was so I was finding all these court cases about it and um, I think it's like you might need to sign off on it but it could be as simple as if you have an automatic signature in your email and that will a court I think 
I it's also been a, a couple of years since I've looked into that it. That's crazy. It, yeah, you, you'd be surprised how easy it is for you to sign off on something wow. like that. Yeah, but even- I would say to like make sure there's a lot of tenants unions and tenants rights groups, and uh, uh, they didn't mention it in this particular article, but some of the people that were in this Dean Street building were. I think majority of them were black. Some of them were black trans women or trans women of color in the house. Like there's a lot of different categories of people that might be even more afraid to try to speak up or they might be less likely to be taken seriously by their landlord. But there's like, let's say if you don't speak or read English that well, you know, like how confident are you going to be? standing up to some of this shit but there are organizations that exist to help guide you through it so if you're having that type of struggle like rather than just googling an action like find out who's doing that work that's around you so that you're not in it by yourself those were all really great tips and i think really important especially to new yorkers right now as you know our future is so uncertain. So thank you so much for sharing that. I know a lot of people are concerned about these issues. Um, and we just have to be careful, you know, because not trying to back the, the renters or anything like that, but you know, all types of people own property in this city. I think it's kind of like diverse in some neighborhoods of the people who own it. And, you know, everybody's going through so much. People are looking for opportunities to scheme and, you know, find ways to get things taken care of that they're struggling with right now. So it's just a big mess, but I definitely think it's a big important thing for us to acknowledge that we should know more about our rights so that we can't, you know, if we are in these situations, we know what to do. Ooh. Yeah. All righty. So let's move it right along. Should we go into a national story before we pop some music in? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's go for it. Um, Who's national? I have a national story. Um, I have a national story, if you want me to do mine. Uh, yeah, go for it, Sarah. All right. So this week, um, I'm going to focus on the challenges that international students have been facing with the recent changes to the U.S. visa system that Trump is hoping to make. Um, on Monday, the White House announced that international students will be required to take at least one in-person class to keep their visas um, at a time when many universities are prioritizing online instruction. This decision would effectively bring down the number of enrolled international students and put pressure on universities to reopen despite COVID warnings from health officials. Many universities have been attempting to curb the creation of COVID hotspots by limiting in-person classes, creating more online options, and inviting less students back to campus in person. My sister is a graduate at USC's film school, and they've been grappling, even without these new restrictions, with the repercussions of online-only classes, as most seminars are in-person labs where students produce and shoot their own films. As much as all these decisions might severely impact students still able to enroll in classes, the international student community is being hit even harder by Trump's new decisions. The New York Times says that such changes could put foreign students' visas, known as F1 visas, at risk under the new rules. International students whose universities are not planning in-person classes, which is currently the case at schools including the University of Southern California, shout out, my sister goes there, and Harvard, would be required to return to their home countries if they are already in the U.S. Those overseas would not be granted permission to enter the country to take online coursework here. This leaves very little room for nuance in how education can be obtained, 
at a time when creativity and improvisation are an absolute necessity. U.S. students have been rushing to swap in-person classes with their international peers to give them enough credits to stay in the country and avoid deportation. Private institutions could take a huge economic hit as well as a result of these measures, leading them to push for a solution to keep international students enrolled. There have been a number of unconfirmed tweets stating that schools with heavy international attendance will begin offering a one-credit in-person global course for all students to prevent them from disenrolling. I know I saw this on from a bunch of NYU people, but it hasn't been confirmed yet. Um, the Trump administration's decisions could potentially contribute to the dismantling of an already unraveling private university system. I'm inclined to also point out that if costs for a U.S. university education were not as steep for students, we might not be rushing to fill these holes in revenue and would potentially be able to allocate more time and resources to keeping our international students enrolled for the purpose of enriching the national dialogue and student experience. But at least as it stands, schools have a strong incentive to fight back against Trump's policies under the guise of fighting xenophobia and a global pandemic. So I also recently saw, recently in the last like hour, that there was an update um, from the New York Times that the battle between the Trump administration and these universities escalated today uh, because Harvard and MIT are seeking a court order. Essentially, they're suing him to protect foreign students from losing their visas. And the president threatened over tweet. I don't even understand how this is still like now <laughs> the a legitimate way of getting information. But over a tweet, um, Trump threatened the tax exempt status of institutions that he claimed indoctrinate students, basically saying that um, because of the liberal he, he just doesn't trust like the liberal media, the liberal universities and all that. Um, but federal law prohibits the IRS um, from scrutinizing tax exempt organizations, quote, based on their ideological beliefs. So I'm not exactly sure how far he's going to get with that argument. But anyway, yeah, this is this has been a whole thing. I'm sure you guys have heard about it. And from a lot of I've been hearing about it from a lot of people that are my graduate school friends and stuff like that. But um, what do you guys have to what do you guys think about this? This yeah, is they, really awful. This is really awful. We were definitely talking about this uh, at my job this week. We actually only have two international students because we're a smaller college. But mm. um, just what that even means for them, you know, to stop their education in the middle. Most of them are paying for school out of pocket um, and having to go back into countries coming from U.S. with this COVID thing. It's oh, my gosh, I, my heart goes out to them right now. Yeah. And taken in conjunction with the, um, did the Trump administration already end the, was it H-4 visas for, uh, to bring in workers, the highly skilled worker visa, that program get ended? I'm not sure. We have to do a quick fact mm -hmm. check on that. Anybody know? Well, I think he was at least planning on doing it if, if he hasn't done it already. So it's pretty clear that um, that this is just kind of like a wish list of, of like, oh, great, a pandemic. This is like a cool way of, you know, isolating uh, America even further. So according to Business Today, Trump has suspended H-1B and H-4 visas for the rest of 2020. So, yeah, it is like a very harsh, xenophobic um, 
line that this administration is taking and apparently there's they're trying to um fight again to get rid of daca like we talked about that being a win a couple weeks ago but it's not completely settled um but yeah, yeah a lot of these universities if you're an international student you're not eligible for for financial aid so there are a lot of colleges especially private ones like sarah said they depend a lot on that money so I'm happy that there's schools challenging it, um, but I, I think a lot of the logic is about their bottom line um, when they decide to sue, because it's I don't know how a lot of these schools are going to stay standing if they're losing so many tuition dollars, and this is such an impossible situation. Yeah, the DACA situation, um, was that the court ruled that the the Trump administration's reasoning for trying to end the program like wasn't good enough essentially and Trump did like automatically vowed like oh we're gonna uh, try again with a better reasoning or something but I mean like good luck trying to find a good reason to end that program um you dummies but um I can't believe I mean this has been happening for weeks now or it's been developing for weeks now but I'm sort of in disbelief that COVID is becoming like a partisan issue. I, well, they're trying to make it so anyway, like they're trying to, because essentially this decision is based around the fact that Trump wants things open. So he's just like, oh, how are we going to get universities open? We can't have them open if international students are enrolled. Like, let's get them out of here. That's his dream anyway, because he doesn't want foreigners in our country. But, but it's crazy to me that COVID is now like a political issue. I mean, of course, it's going to be political if it's tied to politics, but I just mean, like, COVID itself. Like, is it a threat? Is it not a threat? Like, it's clearly, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, all of that, like, everything, like, science has become a political issue. It, like, facts, right, are up for debate now. And it's so, it's it's upsetting. And here's, like, it's, like, immediate right now, like, as opposed to climate change, which is something that you know, is easier to deny in some ways because it feels less immediate. Like this is something where your neighbor could die because you don't believe you need to wear a mask. Um, and so it's really being pushed to the public stage in a way that is like shocking. But I feel like what, what Trump like hasn't wrapped his, his mind around is the fact that anyone can get COVID. Like it's not just liberals getting COVID. Like there, there are people who are going to be really upset and offended by his decision making that are conservatives, and he's really turning people against him. No, his vice president's assistant or whatever <laughs> got it. It's uh, yeah. It's just like whatever. I mean, who gives a shit? Yeah, and I think all we're also seeing what we're also seeing is like someone whose whole life has been about money and capitalism, not being able to put that aside for like public for the good of humanity like on the very public stage right now where he's made it not his whole life his whole campaign is about money and the economy and the stock market and he it's what he's relying on just for momentum for voting for all these things it's like an ideology he can't remove himself from Mm -hmm. There was, um, I, I think, I don't think she was a medieval, a medievalist, but there was a woman on Twitter who was a scholar of like Europe in like the 1600s, 1700s. And she was saying how 
in spite of all of the quote-unquote advances that we've made, it's fascinating to her to see how there's so many people living today that are responding in the exact same way that people did 100 years ago, 200 years ago, because the whole using a pandemic or some kind of outbreak as a way to demonize certain groups, even though anyone can get it, is very American. Like, it happened with yellow fever. It happened with the plague when it came, when it was cropping up in California at the turn of the century. It became a thing to demonize the Chinese, even though, you know, you could be any color. If the conditions are right, you're going to get it. And we're seeing the same thing now. You know, it's like as much as we know, there's people that are still going back to the same like tribal type of reactions to like us versus them, or it's about believing in it or not believing in it and scapegoating. It's and being used as like, yes, like this is our opportunity to seize on this, to cause more division and to get this and that done. Like it, it seems like it crops up every generation or so. Yeah. You're, you're so right. Especially the medievalist. I, I should probably mention this too, but the plague uh, the Black Plague, the the big one, um, Jew, like Jews weren't getting sick as often or as frequently or maybe at all. And so that was a huge moment of scapegoating for that population as well. And part of it was because like part of the Jewish tradition includes hand washing um, in a way that a lot of the population wasn't as well as like other things that are just built in in terms of food preparation and cleanliness um and they were demonized yeah they were they were demonized and called witches and things like that and it so it really is like ingrained in our culture to attack when there's disease about instead of like asking like you know like they it was assumed that they were there was like a an evil intent or like a demonization sort of thing as opposed to like asking what are you doing and why aren't you getting sick when we're you know there was instead of like looking at science and all that psychology stuff. is crazy back then there wasn't hardly any science like there was this doctor i'll find it and bring it up next week or something but there was this yeah. doctor who was um delivering babies like it's a long story i won't say the whole thing but he was trying oh. to say like something is happening when you wash your hands that does something positive, so please do it. But all the other doctors were so offended that he was saying they were dirty, he ended up being committed and basically beaten to death. Yeah, yeah. And it's, was... it's insane. Like, it's so... It's like the more things change, the more they say, stay the same. And I wish... There's people trying to rehab Ronald Reagan right now. Like, they miss... At least he was better, as if the AIDS crisis did not happen. <laughs> You know, that was another epidemic that got turned into a like, well, these people are being hurt the most, so it's not really a big deal. And things being politicized, misinformation being spread, not a sense of urgency of fixing it. It's, <laughs> No, that was great. That, there was a, the Radio Lab episode on, on, on the guy who discovered, like, sanitizing your hands because... Uh, all the women were dying after childbirth because in the hospital, the doctors would dissect people in the morning and infect uh, women in the afternoon as, after they gave birth. Oh, yeah, but the women, like there was a, there were midwives and then there were the male doctors and the women that went to midwives were not dying because the midwives weren't doing autopsies. 
And it was like this mystery. And it's like, well, yeah, if you're touching sick, dead people and then you're delivering kids and you're not washing, they're dying. We have to do something. But rather than listen, and the doctor was a foreigner, too. It was like this foreign man coming, telling us we have to be clean, like he's the problem. And, you know, we just see the same shit every day. Mm. I think it's time for a music break, guys. Yeah. Music break. What song you want to sing? Are we gonna? Um, I I got a throwback just because of the mood today. So our throwback today, this is a uh, rainy days by Mary J. Blige and Ja Rule. We'll be right back. Smile. It's just those rainy days. And we are going to go into our next national story. Who's up on the docket? I, I'm on the docket. Docket time. Okay. <laughs> go for it, Matt. Okay. Pandemic has made things hard for people suffering from addiction, obviously. Along with uh, their immune systems that can be more at risk, addicts are also more likely to smoke, which increases your risks. Communal living and homeless shelters, obviously, is not a good thing in New York City. All homeless shelters have been moved to hotels, or at least the overwhelming majority of people experiencing homeless have been put to hotels, which helps a lot, but there still is a lot of daily contact uh, among those people. Uh, I work at a homeless shelter, and it, it blows my mind um, how much, you know, we just roll on the dice, because <laughs> uh, there still is, like, meals that be made and small elevator and, and whatnot, Um Another challenge that they face is for people with opioid addictions is mandated daily visits to methadone clinics. That obviously doesn't comply with social distancing guidelines. The federal government has now allowed for clinics to give multiple doses at once so the person doesn't have to come back every day, but many clinics have been slow to adapt the new rules, which is just nuts in its own right. Uh, addiction's really hard and I mean, it's a full-time job getting off uh, something as aggressive as an opioid, uh, having to go to a clinic each day just to get your methadone so you don't get sick is, I mean, you can't really, (laughs) you can't do much else. 
Uh, but the list goes on. Um, another factor that I hadn't thought of, uh, this is, comes from KH, khn.org. Quote, Kristen Donesky, who runs a needle exchange and outreach program in Massachusetts, worried that it won't, won't be clear when some drug users have COVID-19. She says, when folks are in withdrawal, a lot of those symptoms can be masked, can can kind of mask some of the COVID-19 stuff so people might not be taking some of their symptoms seriously because they think it's just withdrawal and they've experienced it before, end quote. Then there are some of the more commonplace problems of alcohol addiction. Support groups like AA are rooted in community. One member said, um, one member said, who was also quoted in that KHN article, quote, maybe I'm old-fashioned, but the whole point of going to a meeting is to be around people and be social and feel connected, and I'd be totally missing that if I did it online, end quote. Many of the AA community in this one newspaper that I uh, found have made the shift all right, but AA is a very diverse group, and some people don't have access to internet, some people don't have access to devices. Uh, in prisons, there's AA connections that in those programs, some of those programs have been suspended. Um, and I don't think anyone would be too surprised about all the all of what I've just recounted. It's kind of predictable. It's kind of what you would think. But one thing I saw just before we started recording, because I was trying to find something that I, I hadn't heard of or something I, I could learn more about. And there's this thing called the crisis next door. Is anyone familiar with that? No, I never heard. No, I haven't. It's part of the Trump administration's opioid approach or programs, or and it's it's a program and it's a website put out by the White House to address the opioid crisis. And it's kind of weird because I found it because it had an ad, right? So you know, in the search results, and I was like, an ad for an opioid thing. This kind of is a little bit of a red flag. Um, but then maybe you know whatever. And I mean. I'm all for anyone trying to help people um, going through this stuff, but I, I was a little bit suspicious about the White House and the, their um, objectives. And in one article I found, um, and which article was this? I'll, I'll cite it in a moment. Um, they write, quote, of the 68 videos displayed on the website during a U.S. news review in late June, more than a third of the storytellers mentioned or thanked Trump and his, and his administration for the platform or for a related policy effort. And what they're referencing is on the website, there's a bunch of testimonies you can click on and people say, like, oh, I'm suffering from this and, you know, here's my experience. And he said over a third of them thanked the president in, in their in their testimony. Continuing the quote, and while some people of color are featured, including U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Jerome Adams, who spoke about his younger brother and former professional baseball player Daryl Strawberry, who discussed his struggles with addiction, the mass majority of speakers appeared to be white, making the initiative appear aimed at a narrow demographic, end quote. And that was just a bit of a bummer because as much as I, I dislike the current administration, 
Uh, like I have nothing wrong with congratulating them on doing like something good, <laughs> like something that is this needed. Like I, I think I can, but it was just a, such a bummer because it's, and it felt just kind of gross to see that they had been cherry picking these testimonies and taking something like the opioid crisis and turning it into a piece of re-election material. So it's not surprising though. I feel like unfortunately for them yeah i mean you just don't need them to be thanking him right i mean you still get the publicity like you still get to say that you did it right and a lot of trump supporters you know are suffering from this stuff it's just like this extra step i mean i mean that's that's the everyone has been we've all been going through this for the past three years or so we just can't believe like how weird this person is to inject this type of vanity into like everything that he does. I mean, the more it happens, the more I'm convinced it's pathological. He really like, it is the thing driving him as a human being is praise. Um, and the ability to convince himself of that as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the, the face in general of the opioid crisis, even though it can affect people across racial lines, like I do think the dominant narrative has been of it being a white working class thing. And I know it's come up before in the media, but comparing the way um, like the crack epidemic was treated in the media as being something to criminalize and the people that are suffering from it are like these monstrous people we have to crack down on and throw in jail as opposed to now like you see a lot more which is the right thing to do like if you are suffering with addiction like that is a health issue it shouldn't be treated as a moral failing but why is it that you're making the decision to cherry pick who's the face of the epidemic in order to treat them like they have stories that deserve to be told and they deserve help? It should be everybody, not just people that are in your in a particular demographic that you want to vote for you or you want their family to vote for you because you're pretending to care. Yeah, certainly. Has anybody have any... Um personal experience with this stuff going going on i've, I've had in the past uh, troubles with alcohol and one of the first things i thought of when the when this pandemic started happening was just like oh shit it's gonna be it's gonna be difficult for some people i think what we'll see coming out like next year is what the struggles were for everybody who survived the pandemic and we will see a lot of that narrative coming out um, and survival stories. You know, I'm trying to be hopeful in that next year things will be different because we would have been living with COVID for so long. So, you know, some things are changing systematically, if you will, and we have to adjust. But I do feel like, you know, after every major point in history, there's always these stories of the survivors. And that's when you hear about these struggles coming out. Um, I know definitely everyone's intake <laughs> of whatever your vibe is has increased during this time because it's just been so stressful. You know, whatever your vibe is, I'm sure everybody's went off the deep end a few times because um, that's what happens when you're dealing with trauma, you know? Um, and it's really tough because people can't leave their homes to get help. And a lot of centers that are there or, you know, different establishments that are there to help people, they're not as available uh, to people in this world right now. So definitely a major issue. I feel like more will be coming. 
I also think it's important to think about how the way that issues with drugs are criminalized is such a huge problem because, you know, if I want to have a glass of wine to unwind when I'm at home, nobody's going to say that I need to be locked up. Nobody's going to stop me from getting housing because I would like to have a drink. But if you're someone who's been like labeled by the system as you have a drug problem, you have an alcohol problem, and in order for you to have housing, you have to agree to not drink or not do any drugs, I think is fundamentally a problem. Like, I think it's great when people want to, you know, wean themselves off of narcotics and off of alcohol when they're struggling, but that shouldn't be like a condition in order for you to have a safe place to go. And a lot of housing situations and shelters are kind of like that like in order for you to live there you have to not you have like this condition of you have to not be using at all and that's fundamentally a problem it's going to leave a lot of people out in the cold Mm -hmm. yeah it's horribly oppressive it's i mean i i work in at a shelter and it's it's really really hard to uh, stomach some of the things that some of the rules that we have to play by because it's, yeah, it's the, uh, I don't know. It, it's a pretty, pretty awful thing. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's not fair. It's, 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 it's incredibly fucked up. <laughs> you have every awful thing happening. And then this one building, this one group of people having to address a uh, hundred and uh, we have like 105 people and they have, such a wide variety of uh, problems and needs and we just have to treat them all like the the person who needs the most uh restrictions because that's you know that's just like how the system's set up right now oh so much to unpack so much to unpack definitely an important story and an important topic any last thoughts on this story before we get into some world news? All right. Well, thank you, Matt, for bringing that story to the table. Um, so I'm on world news this week, and I have two short stories, uh, not really related, but related. So the first one um, is about the mysterious death of a mayor in um, northern Seoul in Korea. Um, so police officers found the body of Mayor Par- Park Wonsoon in southern Seoul hours after his daughter had reported him missing, uh, the authorities said on Friday. Mr. Park was 64 and he left his daughter a cryptic will-like message, uh, according to uh, a news agency. I did get this information from M- MSN.com. And so, yeah, hours later, his daughter called the police and hundreds of officers were sent to search for him. His body was found at Mount Bugak in northern Seoul, near where his phone signal was last detected. There was no immediate details about his death and no cause of his death has officially been recorded, but police are investigating the case of a suicide. Uh, His disappearance came a day after a secretary in his office told the police that he had been sexually harassing her since 2017. Um, this mayor was considered to be one of the most powerful elected officials in the country right after the president. He was a prominent human rights attorney and he had founded, um, the country's most influential civil rights group. That group is called the People's Solidarity for Participation, for Participatory Democracy. And it was a civic group that he led, um, 
that was really big on being the leader watchdogs on corruption ties between government and big businesses, launching investigations and lawsuits, um, and all that goes, you know, between corruption between big business and government. In his nine years as the mayor, he drove an endless series of policy initiatives. He lowered college tuitions, installed free Wi-Fi connection in public parks, um, and he also converted part-time workers in the city uh, finance corporations into full-time employees. He also pushed to make Soul Street safer for, at night for women by deploying escorts for women walking in deserted alleys where crimes had taken place. He even introduced a smartphone app for women that alerts police when they are in face of danger at night. So his death is now mirrored a controversy. Uh, there was widespread speculation that we, he would have been uh, the future that there was widespread speculation that in the future he would have become a, a leader for the Democratic Party and become the country's president. So this is very interesting, um, particularly because, you know, for someone who champions civil rights and all of this action towards women to now have possibly committed suicide after being um, deemed as a sexual harassment person. I just thought that was a very interesting story. So moving over um, in the interest of time to my next story, which kind of ties um, to this topic. And I received this information from the Washington Times and also an article on PBS.org. Uh, some of the contributing um, authors are Angela Charlton and Arno Pedrin. So women rights activists protested in Friday in multiple cities in France and abroad against the President Emmanuel Macron's appointment of a new interior minister on Monday who has been accused of rape. Hundreds of women protested in central Paris and dozens were photographed wearing banners uh, condemning rape culture. This person who was just um, appointed, his name is Gerald Darmanian, and he denies all allegations. One of the speakers who identified herself as Margot is quoted as saying, Without questioning the fundamental right to the presumption of innocence, the nomination of a man accused of rape reminds us how sex sexual and sexist violence is normalized and minimalized, including at the highest level of the state. Uh, later in front of the Paris City Hall, women staged a flash mob and performed a song and dance uh, to a song called A Rapist in Your Path, which is a chant that was started by feminists in Chile and is now becoming an international rallying cry against sexual violence and victim shaming. Activists are also concerned about LGBTQ rights. Um, as Darmanian was in charge, he will now be in charge of French police, and he had opposed gay marriage uh, back in 2013 before France had legalized it. Women's rights groups are also angry over the appointment of provocative lawyer Eric Dupont moretti as the justice minister. Among his clients have been a former French government member accused of rape, suspected terrorist, and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. So there's a lot going on there. Um, I hadn't really known that this was going on there, but it seems that they have been elevating all of these um, people who are accused of rape into the French government. It's like chess pieces are just kind of moving on this board. Um, as the Me Too movement encourages women all around the world to speak out about past sexual misconduct to men, uh, Dupont Moretti is criticized for calling women crazy because they crucify, and this is quoted, uh, men on social networks. He's been ridiculed as the world's first law against, he ridiculed the world's first law against cat calls and other street harassment passed um, in France in 2018. So Macron's office uh, responded by saying that the probe was not an obstacle to Barmanian's appointment to the job that puts him in charge of the police and other law enforcement. Women have demanded Darmanian's resignation 
and exuded anger over Macron, who has promised to make fighting sexual violence a grand cause of his new term. So, yeah. Um, what do you guys think about these stories? I, I, I remember reporting on something very similar to this last summer around this time where women were standing up against the laws, not um, protecting women in domestic situations with their partners. And now this is, seems like it's taking it to another level here with these protests. Any thoughts, ideas? Yeah, I, I like when you said that women are crucifying men for on social media. I, I got like the image of like Jesus Christ, like being crucified and being like, like, oh, yeah, like, like he was actually a bad guy though, because <laughs> like, wait, no, <laughs> right. Like, well, it's 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 that guy calling, you know, comparing the men to Jesus in that way, right? Yeah. <laughs> more than more than trying to turn, you know, Jesus into a bad guy. It's like this total mis, you know, representation of a lot of different factors. Yes, very good. Yeah, right on. There's that and people talking about witch hunts and all this other foolishness. Like it's just there's a lot Ugh, of people I who know. have a they have a voice now that is able to get out without being gatekept by other people and people in power don't like it, mm -hmm. you know? You know how, like, um, you know how, like, with medicine, like, for most most medicines, like Advil or whatever, there's a statistic, there's like, there's a percentage that, like, someone will be allergic to it and, like, you can't test for every medicine. And so, like, some people, like, die from it or like have a bad reaction it's like if these dudes had the same approach to like <laughs> like the amount of like men who who are um who are unjustly called out is like the same to like just being allergic to these medicines and they're not getting out any soap ops like banning like ibuprofen and shit because of like this statistic unlikelihood that someone is innocently like hurt <laughs> yeah. i like that so true though did it make sense though i thought it was kind of a weird, weird. yeah I think so i mean because yeah. it's about power exceptions to everything you just can't use that as your platform you know yeah yeah it's about power and things that used to be you know quote okay not being okay anymore and people empowered hating that not being able to handle it absolutely so I'm sure we'll hear more about these stories, but just want to bring that up. So Emily has our final good news story of the day. I do. I do. I do. So uh, this good news story comes from an Associated Press article from July 6th titled U.S. Supreme Court Deals Blow to Keystone, Keystone Oil Pro Pipeline Project. Um, I got a little background info from Wikipedia. Please forgive me. And also from NPR. Um, all right. So quote. The U.S. Supreme Court handed another setback to the Keystone XL oil sands pipeline from Canada on Monday by keeping in place a lower court ruling that blocked a key environmental permit for the project. Canadian company TC Energy needs the permit to continue building the long-disputed pipeline across U.S. rivers and streams. Without it, the project has been heavily promoted by President, Trump, uh, by President Donald Trump, I'm sorry, the project that has been heavily promoted by President Donald Trump faces more delay just as work on it had finally begun this year following years of courtroom battles. And that's from the AP. 
Um, so the Keystone Pipeline, as a little background, uh, was pr- first proposed in 2008, and it's a plan to carry oil from Canada all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. And the fourth phase of that project is specifically the Keystone XL, um, which has been the hotly contested uh, part of it, contested by climate change as well as Native American rights activists. Um, so the Obama administration rejected the Keystone project twice out of concern for climate change, but in 2017, Trump obviously, uh, made moves to push the project forward, citing reduced American reliance on foreign oil, which sidebar, by the way, renewable energy initiatives would also do. Um, And he also cited, quote, thousands of jobs, which was just pure BS, um, according to NPR reporting on that part. Um, quote, the oil industry and some labor unions have supported the pipeline largely for the thousands of construction jobs it would provide, but those jobs are temporary. The State Department has estimated that once built, the pipeline would employ about 35 people, Um, end quote. So the lower court ruling by U.S. District Judge Brian Morris in Montana sided with, quote, environmentalists who contended a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers construction permit program was allowing companies to skirt responsibility for damage done to water bodies. Um, And then another quote from NPR, um, the Fort Belknap Indian community of Montana and the Rosebud Sioux tribe of South Dakota contend there was no effort to study how the uh, 1200 mile pipeline project through their respective territories would affect their water system, water systems and sacred lands. Um, So unfortunately, the the Supreme Court ruling here wasn't all good environmental news. Um, Part of the ruling was about the Keystone XL and sent it back to the lower court ruling, which is good news for environmentalists. But the other part of the ruling um, actually does allow other pipelines to move forward. So more work to be done, but specifically with this like big name and this pipeline industry, um, we got a little bit of good news. So there you go. All right. Cause we definitely need it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, thank you, Emily. Yeah. Thank you, Emily. So thank you, everybody, for contributing to the show this week. And thank you to all of our listeners who has been following the show, keeping up with us. You can find our older episodes on the Radio Free Brooklyn website or app or anywhere else where you can find iTunes podcasts. We're going to roll out with our final song. This is Lessons by August Alsina. We will see you next week. Bye. 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 Business. I don't with no business. So many people in show business got nothing to show for.